there, all you excellent extraterrestrials. We are back with another episode of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined by the fantastic Casey. How's it going today, Casey? Oh, it's going okay. I was telling you of my um, computer woes, old faithful here, my laptop, which I've had since my college days, has basically efficiently given me the senescence um, signs and uh, won't even power my microphone. So if the audio quality is a little bit weird, it's because of that and hopefully will be rectified in the next two weeks when I get a new laptop. (laughs) Womp womp. Way to go, though, Casey, just using your electronic devices as long as possible. It's very eco-friendly of you. And now we know how to properly dispose of our electronic devices as well. That is true. If you haven't listened to our interview with John Shigarian, um, who runs the largest tech recycling company in the country, that's worthwhile listen because you'll learn a little bit about the safety of that and he has offered any of our listeners in that episode a free copy of his book. So you can always shoot us a message if you're interested in that. Uh, but yeah, I have kept this. I love this laptop. I have kept it through little screws falling out of it and me never replacing them <laughs> until it's not structurally sound anymore. But it, it has lasted so long that it basically told me that my software that's on it, the Windows processing, will no longer be supported. And therefore, I must get a new laptop. So this is like, planned senescence for this particular device Um, but now it's physically just being like no no we're done we're done (laughs) so apologies if it sounds like I'm underwater or in the case that we're talking about I sound like maybe I'm coming from another planet Um, (laughs) (laughs) because it sounds a little bit like that to me hopefully it sounds okay to you guys Sarah did you do your homework I did I didn't identify any new trees. So we talked about trees and fall foliage last week and I was excited for this challenge and then it's just been an abnormally busy couple of weeks for me. I've been extremely social. It's been very fun, but I have not gotten a lot of outdoor time in. Uh, I did try to identify a couple of trees, but I wasn't able to get a good ID on the ones that I was looking at. So I don't have any new tree ID, but I just, again, have been more mindful and more aware of the, so most of the trees that I saw as I was thinking about this were actually ones that I had previously identified, which was really fun for me to, to still, still be able to identify those trees, but I do want to find a new one to identify. So that's supposed to be done. I did post on our Facebook page, a photo of one of the trees that I had previously identified and you're welcome to add your own photos on that that, uh, thread or whatever that post on Facebook, I guess, um, as well. So it's been fun to be a little more aware of the trees, but I have not as of yet identified anything new. And I mean, I sure didn't rake any leaves. I guess that was our other chat. I did have a lot of leaf fall in my yard because we had another storm pass through. So my golden rain tree that we've previously identified an invasive tree that is in my yard did lose a lot of leaves that are just gonna sit all over my lawn now well maybe it'll provide some shelter for some wildlife out there how about you how how did your challenge of the week go so I guess I maybe we accidentally not accidentally we didn't accidentally go to the national arboretum but like (laughs) 
<laughs> but we, we went out of town. We went down to Maryland for the weekend and we were looking for things to do. And the National Arboretum was like 20 minute drive. So we, we drove down to the National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. How fun. Yeah. So um, because it is late fall, there weren't a lot of tree identification opportunities. And luckily, because it's an arboretum, the one that I was like, what is that? Um, we went through and like found the little tag on it. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a hackberry tree. So that's interesting. I, I'm not familiar with those at all. Yeah, I wanted more information because I actually expected the National Arboretum to have more trees than it did. <laughs> but it it features a lot like it had like a bonsai garden and like an azalea garden and a fern garden. So it, it felt a little bit more like a National Botanical Gardens, but okay. I'm sure that's another thing. Um so, and I wanted to know more about the tree. I'm like, this is a hackberry tree, but like, how old is it? <laughs> what is it doing? Tell me more about this tree on this hill. So um, we did a couple of that. We, there were a lot of beech trees down in Maryland and not that there's not beech trees in Pennsylvania, but like that felt like the predominant forest cover in the nature preserve we also visited. And luckily we were able to like use the signage there and the clues about the bark to find out what that is. So I guess I like- well done did a plus on it. So I'll post um, a local tree I took a picture of that I had my dad identify for me as well onto our Instagram. And you guys can let us know if you found any cool trees out there. I feel like your trip to the Arboretum is is like one, not that you were giving it one stars. I don't mean that, but have you ever seen those like one star national park reviews? (laughs) (laughs) uh, I just feel like that's your national Arboretum needs more trees. (laughs) More trees. Well, cause you like, you go through and um, we, we spent a lot of time in the bonsai garden because Andrew loves bonsais. The, I mean, technically those are just very, um, dwarfed trees. So mm-hmm. in that respect, many trees, <laughs> but once you headed out back, there was like an herb garden. And then there's this huge hill that has all these pillars, which, um, when we lived in Indianapolis, there is a park called holiday park, which has fake ruins in it. And so I thought they were just fake ruins, but they are actually from the old U.S. Capitol building that they relocated oh, wow. when they expanded the building and put them, just the columns, in the Arboretum. And that was like in a very grassy knoll. So I'm like, where are all the trees at? <laughs> yeah, interesting. But yes, needs more trees. That's my review of the National Arboretum. <laughs> also very lovely and free. So go, yeah. go visit it if you're close, but uh, needs more trees. <laughs> well, we're going to take a departure from trees today, although there is a mention of a tree species, right, um, in here, and talk about the moon. <laughs> yeah, we're going to take, I, I was starting to say we're going to take a departure from Earth a little bit, and we, we are, but we're going to talk about how it all relates. Yes, I, um, I wanted to start with this question, even though it's a little more star-related, but What's your zodiac sign, Sarah? I am a Pisces, and that is literally all I know about that. I don't know anything. I don't do. I I'm a Pisces. That's, That's all I got a for fish, you. Fish, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The symbol is the fish. So there you go. Now, now we've exhausted my knowledge on. <laughs> I am a Gemini, um, and that's the twins. And I don't subscribe to horoscope theory or whatever. But I like it from like a fun personality yeah. quiz sort of perspective. Yeah. But I would re- relate with my friend, our, our friend Alex. Um, the gem, like when you go through the little like, oh, if 
your sign was a person or in this scenario and you flip through those little things on Instagram you're a Gemini typically you should be pretty offended because they're all they're all like you're two-faced and crazy (laughs) so so occasionally Alex and I will find wholesome Gemini memes and we'll send them to each other because they're so few and far in between you have a Gemini support group yeah basically a two-person twins I guess that works Gemini support group we are birthday buddies (laughs) work together and um and yeah so uh you know I know that that has to do more with the placement of the stars but then my friends who are more into that than me will be like but what about your rising sign and your yeah what's this what stage yeah I don't know any of that stuff because I'm like, I don't feel like that. And they're like, yeah, but sometimes as you get older, you ascribe more. I'm like, okay, now you've lost me. I now need to know too much information. <laughs> um, but I do love the moon, man. Um, and I was talking about redoing our kitchen and I had a couple ideas and I was like, oh, I kind of want to do a celestial theme theme and Andrew was like well seeing as you always ogle at the moon (laughs) probably do it and I was like I do drag you outside to look at it so so yeah so we're going to talk about uh the moon and its impacts on our planet because I learned that it's way more important than even like the cursory knowledge that I had so I'm excited to share it all with you so stick around we're gonna talk about the moon to talk about the moon Sarah are you a weirdo like me and like to stare at the moon at night probably not to the extent that you are it is awe-inspiring though sometimes I love a good full moon you know there's I mean I also love what I call the Cheshire cat moon the crescent moons Mm -hmm. uh, because it's like the Cheshire cats anyway uh but yeah I do love I I love a good full moon it uh sort of takes your breath away if you let yourself just sit and appreciate it for a minute so I'm really excited about this topic because it's like we talk about so often, it's one of those things that's so easy to just, yep, the moon, there it is. It's pretty, but I am excited to 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 pause a moment and really learn uh, how the moon plays into our nature here on Earth. Yeah, I mean, like I said in the intro, I knew, okay, it influences things, but it actually may be the reason that life on Earth is like what it's like today and so we'll get a little bit more into it um I wanted to start with just some fun moon facts um I find the moon super comforting because it's it's there your whole life you get to like look up you can stare directly at it unlike the sun right and it but it changes but typically no matter where you're at as long as it's it's not cloudy you can see the moon and it's the same I didn't realize this which maybe I should have but the orbits and the rotations and the speed at which things rotate is like a mush in my brain so I didn't realize we but we not only are we all looking at the same moon we're all looking always at the same side of the moon right so it's just always there we're looking at the same face the same part of the moon it is that is a sort of comforting thought in 
independent. Yeah. yeah, it almost looks like it's looking back at us because mm -hmm. it, it um, as you said, like as it rotates around the earth, which it does, it also spins on an axis like earth does, but it spins at the exact same speed as the rotation. So basically it just keeps kind of turning its little face towards us. Um, and we know what the backside, the dark side quote of the moon looks like because of lunar exploration now. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a picture online. Actually, it was like, our side's prettier, but <laughs> bias. There's no more craters on ours. so there's Ours like has more character. More... It does. It does. Um, so the moon is about a third of the size of the Earth, which feels pretty big. And there's like something like 200 moons in our solar system, and it's like the fifth largest. So it is not an inconsequential moon. Nice. Uh, especially compared to like you know our planet's not that big compared to some of the other ones so it's it's pretty big um we believe what happened is that a mars-sized planetary body crashed into earth about 4.5 billion years ago and the debris from both earth and that body kind of came together in this molten ball that got stuck in our orbit it had volcanoes at one point it eventually cooled and became the moon that we mostly know today, although it has kind of changed over time. It is the brightest thing in the night sky. It's 14,000 uh, 14, times brighter than the next brightest thing, which is Venus. Wow. So there's no Dang. missing it. It's <laughs> <is> the moon. <laughs> and fact that made me weirdly sad, the moon is actually floating away from us. Yeah, that's not comforting at all. I know. I don't like that. And like one to two inches per year. So like over that's... your lifetime, it's going to like move a you away, you know? Don't like that at all. I mean, I guess when you look at the grand scheme of how far away the moon already is from the earth, that's not but that's that is sad come back moon i know i think i saw it's like 36 earths away basically from so like that's already pretty far away so yes it's very little but you i'd like to think that we have such a close connection that right. it's drifting why is it running away from <laughs> um we kind of know why and so we'll get into that a little bit soon and so you might be like okay Casey this is a nature podcast so maybe i'll see the moon when i'm in nature but does the moon really count as nature and I would argue that yes. Totally. I think it counts. It plays a really big influence, not just on like how our planet works, but also how ecosystem interactions happen. And so I want to get into that a little bit. Sarah, what is like the most famous thing that our the moon does to the earth? I don't remember how old you are when you first learned this, but I just feel like it's one of those things that you always know that the moon has a role in the tides. In mm -hmm. our high tide and low tide and it's the gravity it has to do with the gravitational pull of the moon which again is just let yourself think about that for a minute that this thing that is yeah it's like over 200,000 miles away right the distance to, to the moon like, like that yeah. that's something that far away and as you said large for a moon but smaller than the earth like is gonna have that impact on uh on our planet but yeah it, it's the the gravitational pull of the moon in part that helps regulate our tides fascinating yeah and I think like in my brain I learned at some point how exactly this worked and then that 
information sort of washed away about why you're just like washed away with the tide yes (laughs) (laughs) moon tides I don't really know why there's like a push and pull element and so I want actually the thing that inspired me for this episode was a short video of Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about how the tide actually works and I was like oh wait hold on I totally forgot how this happens yeah do you know how the tide works or is well I mean sort of I you you're gonna have to expand but I looked at I had to look at diagrams because it's it it is so it's it's all we talked about this I think with on the last episode too when we were talking about axial tilt and all of that it's all just so large it's all just such a grand scale that I have a hard time really comprehending but there are some some cool sites you can find like I I was looking at NOAA websites a, a lot for this but um that have little diagrams and things but basically yeah I mean so objects exert gravitational force on each other so the the larger and the closer the object the stronger the gravitational pull is going to be so the moon is still a very large object so even though it's it's far away in our minds it's still the next closest thing to us so it has that pull so it's pulling on the the water that's closest to it right which so that Mm -hmm. makes sense that it's pulling on that but then it also like the water on the far side, it's basically s- stretching out the water on either side, right? This is not making sense the way that I'm saying it. I can visualize it in my brain because it's looking at like the tidal force and it's looking at like the average gravitational pull that the moon has over the entire earth. So obviously it's strongest on the side that is closest to the moon and weakest on the side that's farthest from the moon but because you are taking away that average gravitational pull it also like has a a high tide on the side that's farthest from the moon did that make any sense at all um it sounds like you understand the science slightly better than I do and the I I guess diagrams (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'll explain the di- because we're an audio medium I will just explain kind of what the diagram imagine earth if you're driving in your car earth is round um but water's obviously fluid and so it doesn't actually form the same exact shape as our round planet with the side that's closest to the moon and the side that's farthest to the moon basically bulge out a little bit yeah. and so it's like a horizontal oval overlaid on our round little planet and it's more subtle than what the diagrams are probably showing, but it causes high tides there. And then the low tides um, on like the, if it's a clock, the, the high tides are at three and nine and the low tides are at 12 and six. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. They'll describe it as, so if you imagine earth like that, uh, it describes it as a, like a squashing from top to bottom and a stretching from side to side is what it's doing to the water. And I think the cool thing about how Mr. Neil explained it is basically as the earth rotates, it is rotating into the high tide. This is not like the push and pull that we kind of see in our minds. It's that we are rotating into the area when it's high tide that has more gravitational pull and the water is higher there. Yeah. And then we rotate out of it down into low tide. So we normally get tides about, we, we always get them twice a day. It's not exactly 12 hours apart. It's like mm-hmm. 12, 
0.3 hours or something. But yeah, you get two high tides and two low tides a day, um, which I think if you visit the beach, like you know sort of about like in, in the afternoon, I know when we would visit Jersey when I was a kid, the high tide would come in in the afternoon. And that was sort of the end of our day was it starting to come in and eating up the shoreline. The sun contributes actually about a third of the mm -hmm. tide's height as well. So um, the sun is farther away. It is bigger. It doesn't have quite as much influence as the moon, but it does play its own role. So when the moon, the sun, and the earth are in a like straight line, that's when we get our highest of high tides and our lowest of low tides. Um, and then when they're out of sync with each other is when we get what we call neap tides, which are sort of the weakest low and high tides of that season. So. And there are other, like, I mean, obviously land masses and yes. weather can play a role in, in these things as well, but just mm -hmm. that sort of overall cycle of, of those tides here. Yeah. The moon and, and the sun plays that role too. And it's just, it's so cool to really think about that. Right. And most of our life on earth lives in the ocean. So obviously this is very influential on in the lives of marine creatures. Um, billions of years ago, remember the moon is moving farther away. So it used to be 10 times closer than it is right now. Please imagine Met, that yeah. in your brain. Think I don't know if those full moons. Yeah. I feel like that would, it would have, they would have to look huge. I would think so too. I mean, like, I don't know if it was like volcanic at the time and you could like see what was going on or if it just looked like it does today with like slightly different craters, but like giant, it feels like a sci-fi movie, but that yeah. was the planet we lived on was that. Um, but because it was so much closer, the tides were a thousand times higher. So it exerted more gravitational pull because of how close it was. And so the tides are much lower than they used to be. Also, um, because of another factor we'll talk about soon, it occurred every three hours, this high tide, so. Okay, yeah. well, I guess I'm not sad that the moon has moved a little further away then. Um, yeah, it's a little bit crazy. Um, so this tidal, this gravitational pull has not just impacted our tides, it has actually impacted how fast our planet rotates. So the moon is probably moving away because it because of the way our earth spins it has some of the energy of the earth being pulled towards it by gravity man some some astrologist out there is going to be like or astronomist is going to be like oh no this is <laughs> <laughs> but I, i'm pretty sure i'm right and um and because of how the, the tide, the gravitational pull, it has actually slowed down the rotation of our earth and given us what we currently have as a 24 hour day. I had no idea. I don't know about you. Mm -mm. Um, who would have thought? I can't grasp that either. So when the moon was formed, we had about a six hour day. So the earth was spinning so fast and instead of 24 hours, it was a six hour day. That's why the tides were so kind of crazy fast is because the earth was spinning much, much faster into those high tides. Even as recently as 400 million years ago, which you're like, that's not very recent, but there was coral around and coral that was uh, being fossilized. It showed based on the, their bodies, a 22 hour day. So there's like a measurable difference over the time life has been on earth of how much our day has expanded 
and that is attributed to the moon. There's one more thing that the moon's gravity really has a big impact on. Sarah, you talked about it earlier, our axial tilt. In case someone didn't listen to the last episode, which they should, about um, fall foliage, what's up with the Earth's uh, axial tilt? What's going on there? So we're not what what we would think of as straight up and down, which, as we've talked about, is kind of arbitrary when we're talking about in space, too. But in, in our minds, what we would think of as straight up and down with our poles, we're actually slightly tilted on our axis. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you say it's 23 degrees here. So let's go yes, about yeah. to, about a 23 degree tilt on our axis, which also is what gives us our seasons as we as we travel around in space. Yes. And I said more or less, because did you know that that angle changes? I did. I did know this. This isn't something that I dwell on too much because it's weird to think about. It's like almost upsetting to think that, again, things that we think of as stable. We're just out here wobbling around on a slant in space. That's what's happening. Time's just changing, like, you know, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> the earth is slowing down, the, we're wobbling. The so, moon uh, is leaving. <laughs> to be clear, guys, all it's the all websites, very slow, all very yes, slow. all the websites that I, I use, and um, this is a good reminder that Sarah and I are not experts. We source all our episodes in our show notes. So if you want to see information I've pulled from NASA and a lot of other sources, click on those links. You might get those <laughs> diagrams and perhaps slightly more scientific way of looking at it. We're, we're more into the wildlife end of yeah. it. <laughs> we're we're trying our best with this um so anyway all of those websites basically were like don't worry yeah. <laughs> it's one of those like you'll be long dead before anything happens <laughs> um but it wobbles so if you imagine the earth spinning like a top and you can visually see that top when it starts to like wobble mm-hmm. a little bit on top that happens when our tops lose momentum that's not really what's going on but it's just not as stable as you might think like that's not a, a given angle that we would stay at all the time um, and it wobbles about one to two degrees so that's not a significant change and it does it over the course of about twenty six thousand years so it's also over a long period of mm-hmm. time um, sometimes you will see people incorrectly attribute climate change that we're experiencing now to the earth's axial wobble to say that like we always go through cycles of this climate change it's because of that little wobble in there it'll go back to normal that's just not what the science supports it has to do with carbon dioxide and other fossil fuels in the atmosphere or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere due to human use of fossil fuels um but the moon's presence has actually stabilized that wobble so before we had the moon that wobble was more like this extremely erratic rolling of the axis that sounds awful it it genuinely does like like we're talking about imagine earth spinning on its like side that's not what you want that's that's uh not what you want when it comes to having life on earth so um it would screw up all your seasons um it could melt all your polar ice caps if it gets tilted the wrong direction and basically what these scientists were saying is because of that extreme climate change over the, the course of uh it, as far as evolutionary timelines go a fairly evolutionarily quick time for all of that to change only the hardiest of bacteria 
would have been able to survive those sort of changes. So when the moon comes around, she stabilizes us a little bit. And that gives us a much more consistent climate and a much more consistent atmosphere and conditions for life to start to evolve to be a little bit more complex. So really, we would not have like the world we have around us with the complexity of life without the moon stabilizing our planet. This was sort of <laughs> life-giving and mind-blowing to me. Like it, it felt like it almost validated my like love and appreciation for the moon. Like I wanted to go outside and be like, hey. Thanks moon. Thank you. <laughs> so I thought that, that that was super fascinating. And so those things kind of put together cosmically huge timelines we're talking about, huge amounts of space. We're talking about interplanetary body interplay of energy and gravity allow us to have our planet how it is that again is very outside of how my mind conceptualizes life on earth so I did want to talk about a little bit more concretely how the moon impacts behavior of life on earth and there's two big ways that that we do that so Sarah you you know what a circadian rhythm is yeah just based on the the like light cycles Mm-hmm. And that's typically attributed to sunlight cycles. Mm-hmm. It's like a circumlunar cycle. And so you'll hear it all the time for not just like animals, but babies and humans and your circadian rhythm. And if you're using artificial light and looking at your computer for too long, you're throwing off your circadian rhythm, all of that. Um, but we also know that a lot of wildlife has circumlunar rhythms as well. So that means that they are attuned to not just like the the moon rises every night but the cycle of the moon going from new to full full to new and how much life that that changes things um and it, it impacts wildlife through timing and through the light itself and those things are very interrelated like the timing is probably based on the amount of light but it impacts things in, in different ways so let's first talk about the timing sarah coral yeah. Can you talk a little bit, so coral, they live in our oceans, obviously going to be impacted by the tides, but they're also impacted by the cycle of the moon. And can you tell us how coral reproduce? Yeah. And I will say this is really the only, I'm excited for the rest of the conversation because this is really the only thing that I am super, or I'm, I shouldn't yeah. say I'm super familiar with, but this is the only thing that I this is what would have popped into my mind if you were going to talk sure. about the moon and how it relates to the timing of, of wildlife um, is with coral. There are two ways that coral reproduce. They can reproduce asexually through just like boop, like budding off little polyps. And that's, but that's not what we're talking about here with relation to the moon. Uh, what they will do is some corals will spawn and they'll have these mass spawning events. And if you think about it, coral can't move so if we're releasing like sperm at one time and eggs at another time things aren't going to work out very well so uh there's a lot that kind of has to happen right for these so so they basically that's what spawning is is coral will sort of like mass release the sperm and the eggs and they will find each other in the water and meet up and polyps will be for or new 
new coral buds. I don't think they're, are they called polyps in that instance? Anyway, whatever, new coral is formed. Um, and so there's, there are numerous factors that can go into that, but they do seem to be timed. I don't actually know if this is 100% true across the board for spawning coral, but there are certainly mass coral spawning events that are related to the timing of the lunar cycles, which again is super fascinating. Yes. Anytime you try and put an absolute on anything, nature will prove you wrong. Right. So we're not going to play in those waters, but for the instance I was looking at, and this might've been at the Great Barrier Reef. There's, I, I know it happens there, Yeah, but I, I do know it happens other places too. But Between October and December is when mass spawnings of polyps are synchronized. So it's not the same exact time every year. A couple of things will influence it, including water temperature and salinity and food availability. But it always happens after a full moon. So these coral, which like do not have eyes. I think that's like an important mm -hmm. thing to point out there. This is not just like entirely a light thing, probably. Right. They, they don't have eyes. Uh, but that th there's something in the way that the moon is working that influences the timing for all of them to be like, conditions are correct. We're going to make sure we synchronize everything. And that's pretty cool because even coral that you see is a colony of independent little polyps. So yeah. they are, there is something within their, their circular uh, system that is really picking up on the moon. So that is also the one that I, that's why it's up top. Yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing that I knew, but. But it's great. Like the coral in the water on the <laughs> earth is impacted by the moon over 200,000 miles away. I really hope that's the right number because I've said it multiple times. It. I know, I didn't write that in the document, I'm so I can't sure confirm. The moon far away. <laughs> that, far away. Yeah, it, uh, it's so cool. Yeah. And that's I what mean, I have to contribute to this conversation is it's just really cool. That's most of my thoughts about the moon. Um, so another organism, again, doesn't have eyes, is a plant called the joint pine. Okay. So this plant is a gymnosperm, which is an ancient form of flowerless plant. So you think about most plants that reproduce, they have some sort of flower, either they're pollinated by wind or water mm -hmm. or often by insects. Right. Um, flower, you would think the flower is what is going to attract the insect a lot of the time. Correct. And so this is a flowerless plant, but it still relies on insect pollination. So um, the reason I put this under timing is, again, this is a plant. It does not have eyes, so it is not using the light um, in the same way that we do. But during the full moon, it em emits a liquid that kind of drips down and it shines in polarized light, which is what the moon emits. And that light interaction attracts beetles to this plant. And then the liquid helps the pollen stick to the insect, but it, it mostly attracts them over to that area, which allows this plant to then reproduce. That's amazing. How have I never heard about this before? I, I, I don't know. That's I, so cool. I have lots of questions about gymnosperm. I have questions about <laughs> how this works. But yeah, that that's they're they're using the light from the moon in a strategic way 
as a plant. Right. <laughs> so it's again like something that this plant has no understanding internally of how this works, but it has biologically figured out how to make itself continue through the evolutionary timeline by making sure that the pollinator can get to it, even yeah. though it doesn't have anything to give that pollinator normally. <laughs> Another thing for timing, uh, white-brown sparrows who normally start their songs at dawn, start their songs about 10 minutes early during a full moon. I was like, well, that's not super interesting, but it actually extends their song length by 67% when they've got extra light from the moon, and it ends up varying the actual composition of their songs. Too. That's interesting. I do so, wonder yeah. if they're just sort of like, well it well no no it's like when you when the time changes or whatever and it starts getting lighter early in the morning and you're just like gosh darn it like I can't go back to sleep now I might as well <laughs> get up and start doing my chores or whatever if they're it's just my like, freestyle oh, I guess, time I yeah guess I have to sing now <laughs> I only prepared Great. enough content for this amount of time right so. yeah <laughs> no, I just gotta make it up as I go <laughs> jazzy birds <laughs> So those were a couple things with timing that I found. This is not an exhaustive list. So if you have a favorite thing that we're not listing for timing, let me know. But we've got a fair amount to do with light as well, which again, uh, probably a lot of these organisms, timing and light are sort of the same mm -hmm. thing. There is a uh, type of water bird that migrates and it will they migrate to the same breeding platforms as their partner and they always arrive on the same day even if they're not coming from the same place and they seem to base it off of flying when there's a full moon so that they end up in the same same place so that's another timing uh instance but moving on to light because walking around in an urban area it's hard to really grasp how influential the moon is when it comes to light but like walking around in the woods when there's a full moon it casts shadows like it is very very yeah. bright when there's a new moon the world's scarier <laughs> it's so true um and worth point I, this is common knowledge but just worth saying it's not really the moon's light it's the light that the moon is reflecting from but yeah it makes a yeah. huge difference huge difference and so um in habitats where there's not a lot of artificial light this has a really big influence on animal behavior so ecologist Meredith Palmer and her colleagues have studied the behavior of lions and prey, their prey species um, in correlation with the light of the moon. And what they found is that lions are much more successful hunters during the new moon. So when it's okay. super dark out, they are more likely probably able to hide from their prey species who might be able to see better in the light oh. of the full moon. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, I mean, because we know like cats have better low light vision yes. than some other animals because they have that reflective layer that maybe but yeah I guess that that makes it's, sense too is just being able to stay hidden longer it's probably both it's probably that like the cats are taking advantage of being able to see better in these environments but also the prey are at a disadvantage because they can't see as well in those mm -hmm. environments and so they used a bunch of camera traps through the snapshot Serengeti program so that citizen science program that we've brought up before, there's all sorts of pictures that, that get shot by camera traps they need to be sorted through. And so it's something you guys can actually participate in and help identify what's in the pictures. And they were able to see that, yes, the lions catch more during the new moon, but also the prey species behavior changed during different cycles of the moon, probably based on the behavior of the lions. 
Um, but they, but the prey species also sort of picked up on like higher danger when it was darker. Right. So wildebeest, which make up about a third of the lion's diet, stayed in safer places during the new moon. So if it was really dark out, they were like, now we're going to the place where we know that there's not as many lions. And it, when there were full moons, they ventured out into areas where they were more likely to encounter lions. So they probably felt safer being able to see a little bit better <laughs> out and it, there. It's interesting that even with that, the lions are still more successful in the new moon. Yes. So, wow. Yep. So those lions, they know what they're doing. Um, African buffalo, which are much, much bigger, um, did not respond as much to the areas that the lions were hunting in. So they're not necessarily being like, oh, it's a, a new moon. So I got to be in a safer place, but they did herd together more. So these really big animals were getting into basically a defensive pose more often during the new moon when there was a higher chance that they would be running into some lions. Um, and there was also a little bit on zebra and it seems like zebra just like to be a little chaotic too. So like tracks. <laughs> yeah. If you know zebras, you're like, yes. Um, but like even the position of the moon over the course of the night would sort of change their behavior too. So the moon doesn't just impact single animals decision-making it impacts these ecosystem levels decision-making because it influences the behavior of one animal another animal has to respond in a different way and they're not necessarily just picking up on the behavior of the predator for example they're they're correlating that predator of the uh, the behavior of the predator with the presence of the moon it seems like so they're like preemptively planning on these things dung beetles use polarized light to navigate uh, around their balls of poop. I didn't know that either. Uh, yeah, so dung beetles, as their name suggests, like to go and find piles of dung, like roll it into balls, mm -hmm. and then they roll it back to a place where they bury themselves and it and get their nutrients from it. It's very cute, actually. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say when you're talking about dung balls, but it's cute to watch them do it. Yes. If you just think about it, like if you have to divorce yourself from the fact that it's poop and it's like a bouncy ball or something, you'd be mm -hmm. like, oh, a little circus trick <laughs> versus like <laughs> poop. Um, but they found during new moons, they were like much more erratic with their behavior. Like they were bad at steering and figuring out exactly where they're going. With the full moon, they were able to move in straight lines and they know that it's because of the polarized light that scientists know because they did studies with dung beetles where they use artificial light that wasn't polarized to see if it was just like is it light or dark and nope they need that polarized moonlight to be able to efficiently move that ball of dung back to where they need to be uh, this one i thought was really interesting some species of reef fish larvae grow faster during the full moon um, so when reef fish are in their larval stage, they're basically like so tiny, Sarah, I don't know if you would describe <laughs> them. They're like, you basically can't see them individually unless you're looking for them with like a microscope. And during this time, the fish spawn, <laughs> just like the coral do. Mm -hmm. And then there's no parental care. It just kind of floats out to open sea. And then you have all these larvae drifting in the ocean water. And they're really hard to track. We basically don't know what a lot of fish species do in this time period because they're so small, you can't put a tracking device on them. It's hard to tell what's going on with an individual at any given time, where they go, what's going on. But they were able to 
track the older form of some of these fish and use something called the otolith or the otolith. Sarah, do you know what an otolith is? I feel like I have should know this word, but no. It's, it's a fancy uh, name for basically like an ear stone or an ear bone. This is how they track how old sharks are or other species of fish is if they like get the animal and then they take the ear bone, they can see growth rings like a, a tree and they can see the so spacing. Cool. It's super cool. Yeah, this is basically the only way we really have to tell um, a lot of the age on a lot of these species because they don't go, they don't grow the same way that humans do um, and they don't age the same way we do. But for these tiny fish species, basically they were able to take the otoliths from these little fish and they know that they spend 52 days approximately out in the open waters and they're able to see those tiny little rings in the spacing and they're able to correlate them with the lunar cycles while they were out at sea. And they found during the full moon, and the little days surrounding it, there were more growth indicated on those otoliths for that fish, which I think is wild that you could do it on a day-by-day -day basis, but they yeah. basically add a layer every day to this otolith. And oh. so you can, isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, that's cool, I, but why? <laughs> yeah, do we know why? So they think that the reason is, is that, so these are so little that, low level to mid level level predators are the ones that are feeding on larval fish species and during the full moon those smaller predators are more wary of larger predators who rely on their vision <laughs> and so there's like a three-tier ecosystem yeah. thing going on where those mid-level predators are like, I'm going to stay away from the ocean surface where it's really bright because I'm going to get eaten. And then they think that that means that the little reef fish are much more boldly foraging and consuming more nutrients. And that contributes to them growing faster during those full moon cycles because they don't have a predator around because of the predator's predator. Everything's all connected in ways that we would never think of. It's all connected. There's fish that will time their behavior to the new moon because they know that their predators won't see them in the dark and they'll even wait it out like they will make sure that they stay out in the open ocean for a couple days longer if they've mistimed their migration until that new moon happens there are species again that reproduce based on and spawn like fish species turtle species rely on the tides for them to be able to mm -hmm. come inland so all of this behavior that both on land and in in the ocean is related to this celestial body that's super far away and basically there's almost no way for us to interact with it until the 1950s and 60s i think this is wild there's a lot of studies about the moon and a lot of studies that refute those studies about the moon and behavior <laughs> So Sarah, I work in retail, but I feel like this is true at lots of jobs where if something crazy is going on, you're like, is it a full moon? <laughs> Have you ever experienced that? Has anyone ever said that around? People, oh, people say that all the time. Yes. yes. I can't say that it's something I have ever personally like noticed or tracked or anything, but yes, that's certainly a very common, oh, people are being crazy. It must be a full moon type of thing is a very common saying. 
Right. There's, I mean, even the word lunacy comes mm-hmm. from that. You think about things like werewolf mythology, things get wilder around the full moon. Um, they have done extensive studies, scientists from a lot of different fields about whether or not there's increased crime, injuries, mm-hmm. um, suicide rates, erratic behavior, all of that. Um, you can't really attribute it to, for example, the gravitational pull of the moon on your head, because remember, all objects exert some gravity. And so all of the objects around you drown out that mm-hmm gravitational pull on your individual head (laughs) so it doesn't have to do with that um and they basically said there's not really any sort of correlation between full moons or the lunar cycle and the amount of crime etc maybe these individual experiences people are having may correlate to like the full moon happens for a couple months on the weekends and so Mm -hmm. therefore other contributing factors Mm -hmm. might be happening. Emergency rooms might be more busy on the weekends and there happens to be a full moon for a while on the weekends. I feel like it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy for some people too as well in that they just, they're like, oh, it's a full moon and then they notice things more too. Yes, yeah, totally. If that's something that they ascribe to. And confirmation bias, like Mm -hmm. just within you, yep. Um, But- we don't necessarily exhibit weird behavior, but studies have shown, and studies have also not shown, <laughs> that um, it has an impact on our body. They did a study where they had people in a room that had no window or had the window covered up. So it had nothing to do with like the amount of light in the room, but they found tracking people's sleep over a couple months, that people tended to sleep about 20 minutes less during the full moon than when there was a new moon even when they're not exposed to the actual moon that's pretty interesting i think it's super interesting and i think knowing that there are so many organisms on earth that correlate like have their behavior function around some cycle of the moon even ones that can't see the moon (laughs) that it is quite possible that we have a circle lunar system as well that we have cycles that are somewhere deep in our biology that might not express themselves in such substantial ways as some of the other ones but still maybe impact our behavior and so like speculation on that perhaps we're like the the zebras in some way where like there's a predator issue going on and and maybe not maybe it's just sort of a coincidence Mm -hmm. Maybe our ancestors just like to look at the full moon. That's right. <laughs> like, we're going to get up tonight. It's pretty. <laughs> right. um, there's also speculation around the relationship between uh, human menstrual cycles and the moon, because the average menstrual cycle is pretty close to the time that it takes to go through the lunar cycle. Um, the funny thing is, I was like on scientific papers that in their abstract, I saw both things that were like obviously there is a correlation here and ones that are like obviously there's not a correlation (laughs) it is important to say that like yes we have a cycle that is very close but also cycles vary extremely across women in general and that lots of other species have menstrual cycles that have no correlation whatsoever with any sort of lunar cycle so that seems extremely inconclusive right (laughs) so it might just be a coincidence so you might just you know the in 
in history, the moon is typically mythologized as more of a female presence, like a lot of our deities that come with the moon. I have once researched all of the, like, the moon gods and goddesses, and most of them are female presence, like, as opposed to a male presence for the sun. So, you know, we, we do characterize the moon often um, in a female way. We often pair her with the tides and things like that. I think of, you ever watch Avatar The Last Airbender? Some of it. Uh, highly recommend we'll have to get you the dvds but they have like a moon and an ocean spirit that are closely connected and the waterbenders depend on the moon cycles for their powers as well so these are things that are ingrained within our culture it's things that we kind of know but i think until you step back and look at no actually things wouldn't exist the same way if we didn't have this thing in the sky i think it's pretty cool yeah and to me, I mean, we talked about way back in the beginning, our sort of inspiration and why we care about nature and conservation and all of that. And for me, my, you know, faith is a huge cause and motivator. And, and this is a, a reminder of that, because to me, just, I mean, how like the moon literally is stabilizing the earth on its axis and allow it like to, so to me, it's just is reinforces my belief in a creator like I just find that beautiful and uh so yeah I think this whole thing is just really neat and it's really cool to think about how this one thing this rock floating around in the sky out there uh plays such a role in in life on earth I I love it yeah I I think that's a good point whether if you have faith or not like the things that have to come together in order for us to be here and like have a beautiful livable planet are just so the odds are so minuscule that that could possibly happen that for me yeah there's there's for me a faith factor like there's there's something going on that that would make that happen but also just like we're so lucky (laughs) appreciate it yeah appreciate it because it is it is beautiful and yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very thankful. Me too. Well, thanks for joining me on this little journey here. In a moment, we'll do our, our wrap up and talk a little bit about what our homework is. for our weekly challenge. One of the things that we didn't really talk about is how even though the moon is sort of a fact of life to us, um, its role has changed over billions of years and it might continue to change within our lifetimes based on human influence. So I, Sarah, have we done an episode on light pollution? We did talk about I light pollution. So. so yes, we've mentioned your your first challenge here which I'll let you say but yes it has been mentioned yeah so artificial light as I mentioned for the dung beetles they get real confused when you start to introduce that to the equation because that doesn't help them baby sea turtles they get confused about where the the ocean is because often they rely on the reflection of the moon and the water versus the artificial light um so the artificial light that we have introduced into our planet obviously makes our lives better in a lot of ways, extends our daytime, um, but it does dampen the moon's influence on our local wildlife. So one of the things you can do, which I didn't put on the list yet, but like you can turn off your excess lights at night. Mm-hmm. 
especially during peak migrations of birds because they really seem to rely on the moon's light and they get really confused when you've got extra lights on. So if you don't need them on, turn them off. Uh, number two is to research your nearest dark park. Sarah, can you tell us about dark parks? Yeah, so dark dark parks, dark sky parks, it's uh, the International Dark Sky Association designates, I guess, the areas. And these are areas that are basically far enough away from enough artificial light that you um, can get a, a, a much better look at the, the night skies, basically, without the interference of as much light pollution. Yeah, so you can admire the moon in all her glory, where you can go when maybe it's not a full moon, and you can admire the stars. Yeah, and I, as you were talking, I was googling because I'm pretty sure that there is one in Florida and there sure is so I'll have to research it's talking about camping though so I don't know if you have to go and actually like camp to be there at night but I will look into it excellent and then the last and maybe most easy thing that you can do and what I will do because I do it all the time (laughs) is to go out and look at the moon because it's pretty yeah and truly, like we, yeah, we talk about this a lot, but I really do find value in just stopping and appreciating the world around us. And that is what's going to make you care. So do it. And it's not as hard now because it gets dark so dang early. Oh gosh. <laughs> it sure does. I often will do it when I'm taking the dog out for a walk. I have a night sky app on my phone. So I take a little bit more time to like, okay, where's the moon? And then can look at some of the other things. And I've been able to see Jupiter and Mars recently. So there's lots of things to look at, Um, but everybody should be able to see the moon, even if you live in an area that has a lot of light pollution, because she's 14,000 times brighter than Venus. That's right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, those are are your things for the week. They're pretty fun. They're pretty easy. Um, If you are one of those rare people who can take a good picture of the moon send us your moon pictures mm-hmm. <laughs> tell us your moon stories and uh and thanks for listening thank you casey like i truly i'm just feeling so thankful right now and just so appreciative of the interconnectedness of of everything so and i learned a lot on this one too so so thanks for thanks for doing this one where can they send us their moon stories and pics you, if you want to email us, we'll start with that one. This time you can email us at littlegreenerpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to post, uh, we are on Facebook, a little greener podcast, super easy to find. We are on Instagram at a greener pod, a little greener pod. And we're on Twitter at a greener podcast. And we're also on YouTube. I mean, you can comment there if you want to, but uh, you can find our newer episodes there with automatic captions if you would like. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Thanks, Casey. It was great. And thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.